Hey, it's good to be here. You know, you should have asked, how many of you have been to Saskatchewan but are, are afraid to admit it? <laughs> we would have had a lot more hands go up there. Uh, yeah, Saskatchewan kind of, you know, we have, a, we have a reputation out there. I, I was born in Saskatchewan and kind of moved away. Uh, my wife and I raised her family in Manitoba, which I know isn't that far from Saskatchewan. It's the next province over. <laughs> but hey, we get around. And, uh, but we moved back a few years ago to care for Bev's uh, family. It's really good to be here. I feel kind of like kindred with this church because um, many of the staff from the church I am part of in Saskatoon is going to Denver. Uh, we're part of an Acts 29 church there in Saskatoon and part of uh, planting other churches in, in the city. And so, yeah, it's really great to be here. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, just kind of carrying on about making much of Jesus. Uh, we, uh, in 1927, we started as a Canadian Sunday School mission. That's uh, our original name. Ten years ago, we changed to One Hope Canada, uh, essentially meaning this. We bring the one hope of Jesus to the country of Canada. We work only in Canada. We have a heart's desire to, for boys and girls, youth and their families to know the hope of Jesus. And um, that's why we exist. And we do that mostly through summer Bible camps or day camps. Russell and Laurie Smith, of course, in the area here have uh, served with One Hope Canada for years. And I'll share a little bit more about that as we, we go through. But I do want to uh, get into the Word and just unpack it. So if you have your uh, Bibles, if you could turn to Luke chapter 2. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one that looks just like this in the pews. Uh, please uh, take it. Uh, it's the church's gift to you if you do not have a Bible at home. And I'm going to be reading from Luke 2, which is on page 806 in uh, the Bibles that are uh, in the pews. I'm going to start reading verse 39 to verse 52. So I invite you to follow along. Luke 2, starting at verse 39. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not, f and, and when they did not find him, they returned Jeru to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw the, him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You know, the, uh, the text we have this morning in front of us uh, is Luke's account of Jesus as a preteen. Think of that. Jesus as a preteen. And it's, it's unique for several reasons. It's, it's actually the only time we have a record of Jesus um, as a child, besides his, his birth. 
Uh, it's an account that's often passed over, right? Because it's sandwiched between uh, the Christmas, uh, the, the story that we focus on at Christmas time, the birth of Christ. And then, of course, all the rest of the life of, of Christ's ministry, which we unpacked its implications of throughout the rest of the year. So it's kind of sandwiched in between there, and we don't often focus on it or, or spend our time thinking and reflecting on that. And it's only found in Luke, right, who's, who's writing his account of the life of Christ for a very uh, specific reason and to a very particular audience. Like specifically, if you were to flip back to the beginning of, of Luke, you would see that Luke, who he's a Greek uh, physician. He goes on later to travel with, with Paul on his missionary journeys. He's writing an account of the life of Christ for Theophilus. And we don't know much about Theophilus. Uh, scholars are kind of split 50-50, whether he was a believer or just someone seeking at the time. But regardless of it, Luke is writing an account to say, hey, Theophilus, this is who Jesus is. And Luke's account is going to be very counter to what Theophilus is, is used to hearing because Luke is going to introduce a king that is unlike the king that Theophilus would be familiar with in that Greco-Roman culture, which is Caesar. And Luke is going to say, hey, here's a true king. Here's a true savior. This is what he looks like. And so the spirit has led Luke to record the life of Christ, and we have it now 2,000 years later, and we have an opportunity to be reminded of who Jesus is. And we can see how he is having a countercultural message to what we have here in Canada, um, even in 2022. And we're going to learn three things from this account. We're going to see the importance of children's spiritual lives. We're going to see the comfort of Jesus' humanity and the hope of Jesus on a mission. Okay, the importance of children's spiritual lives, the comfort of Jesus' humanity, and the hope of Jesus on a mission. So we, we pick up our story in verse 39, and um, we got to remember that these verses, 39 and 40, those first verses we read, it, it's a hinge verse, right? It's, it's bridging 12 years between uh, when Christ is born and at this event, when they're traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. And verse 39 starts, and they performed everything according to the law of the Lord. So Jesus was Jewish, obviously. Mary and Joseph were committed to following God's law. And so that meant several things. And you find them just in the few verses before verse 39. Jesus would have been circumcised and named on the eighth day. Uh, he was a firstborn male to Mary. And so he had to be presented and dedicated to the Lord. Mary would have went through the purification uh, ceremonies after giving birth as outlined in the law. And then they returned home. And when they returned home, Mary and Joseph would have taught Jesus in the way that the Old Testament, the Bible that they had at the time, prescribed. And verse 40 sums that up, right? The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now, we're going to come back, and as we look at the humanity of Christ in a bit, we'll look at that. But I want to fo focus on that. Just think about that for a bit, a bit. Jesus grew. He developed as a normal human being would develop physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. 
And we see that he is engaging with the rabbis when he's 12, when he goes up to the Passover. And so the Jewish, um, Jewish believers in, in the time of Mary and Joseph um, were needed to go to Jerusalem three times a year. And because the Jews were scattered around the Roman Empire, that was really hard to do. So those three times a year were at Pentecost, at Passover, and at the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And according to our account here for Luke, Mary and Joseph had the habit of going up every year at Passover, which was a feast that celebrated the Israel's uh, freeing from slavery in Egypt. And they had a practice of going up every year to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus would have gone up year after year after year. And here we have him going up at age 12. And age 12 was a pretty kind of a special year in the age of any Jewish boy. Because at age 13, they would go from being a boy to being a man. They would become a full member of the synagogue. And so this is just on the eve of Jesus turning 13. Now, I've, I've walked through all of this, of what Mary and Joseph have done to, to train Jesus in the way of the law, to highlight this one point. The spiritual life of a child does not happen as though flipping a switch. There's not a certain age when we begin to train our children to have a deep, rich spiritual life. Being born in the image of God means that we're not only born physically, but also mentally, emotionally, and as spiritual beings. And we grow in our capacity in all of these areas. And so when we care for the child, we have to care for the entire child, including their spiritual needs. And that's why, like, that's the heart of One Hope Canada since 1927. We want to reach out into the communities, partnering with local churches, reaching out into the communities to share with them who Jesus is and what he has done. And as Paul mentioned, we've done that this past year, close to 35,000 children and youth. And over half of them are hearing about Jesus for the very first time. They've never held a Bible. They have no idea who Jesus is. They don't even have the meaning of what Christmas is, forgetting anything about Easter. And just as a hungry child needs to be fed, right? And we would never have an unlearned uh, child not be taught or a bully child not be kept safe. So we have to have a spiritually neglected child learn who Jesus is, that he's created in the image of God, and that he or she is, has a Savior who died for them and loved them. Children need to hear that message. And it's not just those homes who have no idea who Jesus is. You know, there's sometimes as Christian parents, we can... Um, and maybe it's more for parents, you know, for those of us who've grown up in homes that were maybe, you know, overly strict or legalistic. We sometimes fall into the trap of thinking that we're going to take a hands-off approach, right, when it comes to the spiritual life of our kids. And we love our kids dearly and we care for them as everywhere, any, any, any way that a good parent would. But when it comes to, to caring for them spiritually, 
we kind of overcompensate, right? For fear that if we, you know, go too heavy on telling them about Jesus, that they'll reject Christianity. And so we decide to pull back and we say, you know what? We'll let them get older for them to decide. Now, the problem with that is that it ignores the reality that society and culture do not pull back on the values that they are promoting. And those values will find a home in children and youth when there's a spiritual void. You know, today in culture, there's a never-ending cultural liturgy. You know, we, we use the word liturgy here this morning, right? Culture has its own liturgy. And it opposes the things of God. And the only way to counter it is to teach our youngest generation of what the reality is. And it's not defined by the ever-shifting thinking of culture and society. Reality, what is true, is defined by the good, faithful word of God. And our kids need to learn this. You know, as a church family, you've got an incredible opportunity and a responsibility to come alongside families and encourage them and equip them and do all you can for the parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles so they can live out the good news of Jesus and the messiness of life. You know, as churches and as families, it's good to heed the words that Mary and Joseph would have heeded in raising Jesus. From Deuteronomy, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So we got doctrine and we got doctrine that's on fire because it's motivating the very core of our being. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall walk, you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see how the life that we have in Christ is to permeate all that we do as parents and grandparents, so that we could pass it on to the next generation. We have to be intentional. It just doesn't happen. We have to be intentional and purposeful in, in sharing who Jesus is with the kids that he's brought into our sphere of influence, whether we are related to those kids or not. And do you see the different contexts, right? When we're sitting, when we're walking, when you go to sleep, when you wake up. It, it surpasses, you know, grace before a meal or even family devotions. It's to permeate everything we do because we are so stirred by what Christ has done for us that it can't help but come out in how we do life. Uh, One Hope Canada is partnering with a number of other uh, children's ministries in Canada uh, to do a study of how faith is formed in kids. And the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada is, is um, heading that up. And they interviewed hundreds of Christian parents. And they asked them this one question. When do you have the most productive, fruitful conversations about faith with your kids? 
And it was, that's a pretty open-ended question, right? The responses were overwhelmingly the same. And they were in three areas. Around the dinner table, as long as there's no phones. <laughs> in the car, at bedtime. Does that, does that sound familiar? When you're sitting, when you're walking, when you go to sleep. It's easy. I know, I've been there. We've raised two boys and we have some grandkids. It's easy to get busy with life. That is just life. We can't wait for a time when we will be less busy. The question we have to ask ourselves as adults who have influence on the youngest generation is the value that I see in Jesus is it coming out in my conversation? Is it coming out when I make mistakes, even as a dad or as a grandpa? And do they see the gospel being lived out even in those mistakes because they realize that I can be forgiven and I can be loved? And I'm not perfect, but there's one who is perfect. I will not love unconditionally all the time, but there's one who loves me unconditionally all the time. Will my faith in Christ and Christ's faithfulness towards me so stir me that the youngest around me will see Jesus and I'll take the opportunities to tell them about Jesus? Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, was taught by his mom and dad. That's the importance of the spiritual life in kids. Let's go back to our story. So we've got Jesus being taught by his parents, coming to Jerusalem every year for Passover, verse 43. And then the feast, has, feast was ended. They were returning. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. So just some context there. We, um, th they would travel, right, with big groups, family, friends, from one community to Jerusalem. They're going back. Often the women would be ahead. The men would be behind. They're leaving. So it's easy to think, right? Mary's thinking Jesus is with Joseph. Joseph is thinking Jesus is with Mary. They get together at the end of the day. Can you imagine that conversation? Hey, where's Jesus? I thought he was with you. No, I thought he was with you. Oh, check with James. What about Jude? It's like a home alone moment. Before the movie, 2,000 years before the movie. So they respond like any other parent would respond. They return. They're in stress. And then it leads us to verse 46. After three days, so that's a day's travel, right, away. Then a day's travel back. And then a dangerous looking. They find him in the temple sitting among the teachers, listening to them asking them questions, and then verse 47, answering them, because they're amazed at his answers and his understanding. So notice four very human things there. Okay, he sought out teachers, and in, during the festival days, very common for rabbis to set up these like informal teaching sessions in the temple courtyard. So Jesus searches out one of these groups, he listens, he asks questions, he gives answers. Jesus is engaging as a 12-year-old boy 
would learn in that time in history. This event that Luke records here for us is at the end of 132 verses where Luke is explaining the birth of Christ, that the son of God who created the angels, who announces birth has become the son of man, a 12 year old boy learning in the temple. As you go through the pages of, of the life of Christ and all the gospels, you get the sense that the disciples really grasped the humanity of Christ, right? The disciples saw that. Like they saw when he got tired and he needed to sleep, when he got hungry and they ate together, when his heart broke, when his friends died and Jesus cried, they got his humanity. But the disciples had to remember and be reminded that, whoa, this is also God. Today, I think it's reversed for us, right? We, we seem, at least for me, I seem to grasp that Jesus is God. Like after all, he beat death. Well, no human can do that. He's obviously God. I have not seen Jesus yet with his physical body. So he's sort of in that invisibility realm, even though I know he's not one day, I will see him. But so yeah, he's God. I need reminder that Jesus is also the son of man. He is fully man. The good news begins with this stunning truth, that the second person of the Trinity willingly takes on flesh. No longer is the invisible God unseen, for in Jesus, the visible God is made visible. And I'm quoting Paul in Colossians we see from scripture that the act of God becoming flesh not only was determined before the creation of the world, but we learn through scripture that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, is forever, think of this, forever united to humanity. This is not a 33-year experiment that ended when Jesus went back to heaven. He is forever united to humanity, the God-man. All that belongs to God, Jesus possesses. All that makes someone truly human, Jesus possesses. Fully God, fully man, from now till eternity. This is the mystery that we proclaim. And the incredible truth has powerful implications for us. In Hebrews, he unpacks those, right? In Hebrews 5, it talks about how Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. You know, we think we only learn when we fail and make mistakes. And that's true. That's how we learn. Jesus learned by going through it and suffering perfectly. Never grumbling. Never taking the easy way out. Always persevering, no matter his age. He learned obedience. He suffered everything and he learned obedience as he suffered everything perfectly. And then in Hebrews 4, it talks about how Jesus, the high priest, is able to sympathize with our weakness because in, he's been tempted in every respect as the same as we have yet without sin. Don't get trapped into thinking that, oh, well, Jesus, because he didn't sin, the temptation wasn't real. Think about it for a moment. What's harder? saying no to temptation 
or giving into temptation? Saying no. As soon as we give into temptation, the struggle is gone. The battle is done. The struggle with temptation is there because we are saying no. We are resisting. Jesus continued to resist all the way through his life. Tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. He persevered through the temptation. He perfectly obeyed through the suffering. And so no matter what our external circumstances are or the internal battles we have, Jesus can relate. He gets what we're going through. And it's a powerful thing when somebody gets you. Last summer, so not this summer, but the summer before in 2021, uh, our camp directors from Manitoba, from one of our camps in Manitoba, Dwayne and Sylvia, six beautiful girls, um, two of them went home unexpectedly to be with Jesus way sooner than anyone would have thought in a, in a car accident. I was having dinner with Dwayne and Sylvia a few months ago when Sylvia was sharing where they were in a church months after the accident and people were coming up to them expressing condolences and stuff. And then Sylvia between a hug, looked up at a lady across the room and Sylvia remembered that that lady had lost a child a number of years ago. And Sylvia said, as soon as I saw her and our eyes locked, Sylvia said to herself, oh, I need to go talk to her. She gets me. Jesus gets you. There's not a pain that you're experiencing from suffering there's not a, a battle of temptation that you're not facing where Jesus cannot look you in the eye and say, I get you. Jonathan Owens, the English reformer, wrote these words about Jesus getting us. Jesus had a particular experience whereby the weakness, sorrows, and miseries of human nature under the assaults of temptations and sufferings so particular that he tried it, felt it, and he will never forget it. This is the comfort of Jesus being fully God and fully man. Let's go back to our text. So we see that his parents find him. They're astonished. Literally, that word means left at a loss. There's a gasp in amazement. And they ask him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been searching for you. And then notice that play on words because Jesus goes, why are you searching for me? I have to be in my father's house, right? Mary and Joseph had this difference of thinking on who the father of Jesus was. And Jesus, through this exchange and through this event, chooses this time on the brink of his manhood to tell his parents in a very unforgettable way, right? That he now knows who his real father is and what it will mean for his mission and the implications of that. And we're going to look at that in just a second. But notice the words of Mary, the first words of Mary when, they, when she finds her boy. Son, why have you treated us like this? We have been in such great distress looking for you. The Greek word that the ESV translates great distress means intense emotional pain. Literally, a very painful and consuming sorrow. 
That is what Mary was experiencing looking for Jesus. And we can relate to that, right? Maybe not the exact circumstance, but we can relate to that kind of intense, overwhelming, consuming sorrow. That's Mary. She's focused on fixing what's wrong, right? She's going to find her 12-year-old boy. And it's unthinkable that a parent who loves their kids would respond in any other way. But notice the response of Jesus. Why are you looking for me? Or some translations would say, well, why did you need to search for me? Did you not know I had to be in my father's house? Or equal, equal to the translation can also be, Don't you, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business or his activity or his mission? At the heart of this interaction is this common thread that we can relate to. It runs through so much of our experience and our thoughts of God, especially in those moments when we are like Mary, we're consumed with the overwhelmingness of our pain, and we're wondering, where's God? Doesn't he care? Or maybe we don't even think about God, right? Like we kind of just push him to the side, and we're saying, I'm going to bear down, I'm going to fix this, and then I'll get back to my thoughts on God. We're so transfixed with finding a solution that it doesn't even occur to us that Jesus, he's not distant. He's present, going about his father's mission. See, 18 years later, Jesus, the man, would begin a very public part of God's mission, and it would require him to have such devotion to God's purposes that it would take precedence over any family ties. In chapter 9, we read that, that Jesus sets his face with determination towards Jerusalem for the Passover. But this time, it's not with his parents. It's with his disciples. And in chapter 22, Luke records Jesus again going and celebrating the Passover like he did here when he was 12. Except this time... His mission, which was about to be accomplished, would make the Passover have a new meaning and a deeper significance. For the bread of the meal that Jesus had broken dozens of times before would become a symbol of his body broken for you and me. And that pain that Mary felt being separated from Jesus for those three days, Jesus would feel as he was separated from his father in heaven, taking upon our sin, becoming the perfect Passover lamb. And after that Passover meal, Jesus would not go to the temple courts this time, but he would go to a garden and he would experience an emotional pain, a consuming sorrow, even more than what his mother experienced. As Jesus pleaded with the father, if there's any way that this cup can be taken from me, but not my will, your will, your mission. And so Jesus went to the cross to drink the cup of God's righteous anger and wrath on his creation. That's a cup that I deserve to drink and that you deserve to drink. And in exchange, he gives us a cup of God's favor to enjoy, the cup that Jesus earned. And so now the favor of God that is upon Jesus is also upon you as you place your belief in Jesus and what he's done. 
you know, on that day when Mary found Jesus and Jesus says, Mom, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? Mary didn't understand. Years later, Mary is in front of the cross. She's watching her son die. And she may not have fully understood why, but she knew that Jesus was more than just her son. He was also the son of God. And she would hear Jesus once again speak about his father's business. But this time, Mary heard Jesus say, it is finished. And Jesus, through his life and his death and his soon-to-be resurrection, completed the mission that God had given him. And so this morning, if you're here and you're like Mary, you're overwhelmed with pain and confusion, if you have questions of why on your heart, or you simply push God to the margins, I want you to know this. The God who created you is not far from you. He is not distant from your pain. He is not absent from your confusion. Do you see how he entered our broken, sinful world to experience and know your pain? Do you see how because of Jesus and his finished work, it proves once and for all, beyond a shadow of doubt, that God is for you, that the favor of God rests on you. And do you know what your Savior is doing right now? He's still about his Father's business. And do you know what his Father's business is? It's praying for you. In Hebrews 7, it says that Jesus, because he holds a priesthood permanently, is able to save us completely since he's always living to make intercession for us. Jesus is praying for you. Do you hear him say your name? That's my little brother. That's my kid sister. They're mine, Father. I pray that your spirit would remind them, Father, that they are one with each other and they are one with me as I am one with you. Your Savior prays for you before your Father. What a wonderful truth to rest in. Rest in who Jesus is. Rest in what he has done for you. Rest in what he continues to do for you. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for your plan of complete salvation. Set before the foundations of the world, you chose, O oh, triune God, to rescue your creation. For you knew we would, we'd, we, we would rebel and we would fall away from you, and yet you planned to have your son come and be that perfect sacrificial lamb so that we could be redeemed and know you, your perfect unconditional love. May we rest in what Jesus has done for us, and what he continues to do for us. Thank you, Jesus, for not being a reluctant Savior. Thank you for your work. And may we, as we turn to celebrate your broken body and your shed blood, may your spirit again stir our hearts to be in awe of you. In your name, amen.